0: Uh, The picture that you see um, is a picture of St. Teresa of Avila, Spain. Uh, St. Teresa was a very important figure during this time period. She was a a Spanish noblewoman, and we will talk about her more later as well. A Spanish noblewoman who entered a convent, believed that she had a call of God uh, to follow him and to serve him. And she was one of the famous Spanish mystics of this period. And in the portrait, it's, it might be a little tough to see, but um, Saint Teresa is looking upwards towards heaven, and there's actually, and this is somewhat cut off in this uh, slide, unfortunately, there is a dove representing the Holy Spirit, and there's uh, a little bit of a halo around Saint Teresa, And again, that is to represent her being filled with the Holy Spirit. And you can see on the table in front of her is uh, a book, presumably the Bible, a crucifix, and a human skull. And I was sharing, uh, before we got started, I was sharing with some of the folks here. um, You often see in medieval and renaissance and sometimes later periods, works of art, where a figure is depicted, and there might be different items um, in in the painting around this figure. You know, some of those items might be things from everyday life. Um, and but oftentimes they would uh, the artist would tuck a little human skull somewhere in the picture. And this became known as a memento more, in other words, a reminder of death, or a reminder that man is mortal. Saint Teresa is mortal. The artist who uh, created this painting is mortal. All humans are mortal. Uh, so uh, we'll talk more about Saint Teresa a little later. But I thought that was a that was a picture that encompasses a lot of what um, she was concerned with. She was mainly concerned with communicating with the Holy Spirit following Christ as closely as she could. Okay. <clears throat> so the Counter-Reformation and Latin Contra Reformatio, also called the Catholic Reformation, or the Catholic Revival, was the period of Catholic resurgence that was initiated in response to the Protestant Reformation. Now. We haven't talked a lot about the Roman Catholic Church or its doctrines, except insofar as uh, it came into the discussion of various Protestant reformers. But certainly with uh, Martin Luther having started Lutheranism, other reformers throughout Europe uh, having instituted various um, protests and attempts to reform church practice, beliefs, and so forth, Um, the Catholic Church came to a point where they felt they needed to uh, reform Catholicism. And as we'll see, this reform essentially became simply a doubling down on Orthodox Roman Catholic theology and practice um, and an attempt to essentially refute Protestantism as best they could. Uh, So the the Catholic Reformation began with the Council of Trent, 1545 to 1563. Uh, So this council was in session for a long time, and it largely ended with the conclusion of the European Wars of Religion in 1648. Um, It was initiated to address the effects of the Protestant Reformation and was a comprehensive effort composed of apologetic and polemical Uh, documents. So polemics is, it goes beyond just rhetoric. It goes beyond just laying out a point of view, but actually strongly advocating for that point of view. And the restructuring of the church as decreed by the Council of Trent. Important restructuring efforts included imperial diets of the Holy Roman Empire. If you remember when we were talking about Luther, Luther was hauled before the Diet w- that was meeting in the German city of Worms, before the Holy Roman Empire Emperor Charles V, and uh, you know Cardinal Cajetan and other high church officials. Exiling and forcibly converting Protestant populations, heresy trials, and the Inquisition anti-corruption efforts. Such policies had long-lasting effects in European history with exiles of Protestants continuing uh, as far as 1781 in the document called the Patent or Patent of Toleration, um, a lot of the uh, attempts of Catholic Church uh, the Catholic Church in Europe, Uh, to exile, simply to get rid of the Protestants came to an end, although even until the 19th century, the 1800s, Catholics in various parts of Europe were attempting to continue to push Protestants out. Reforms also included the foundation of seminaries for the proper training of priests in the spiritual life and the theological traditions of the church. Reform of religious life was instituted by returning the monastic orders to their spiritual foundations. New spiritual movements focused on the devotional life and a personal relationship with Christ, fostered by the work of the Spanish mystics and the French school of spirituality. Pope Paul III, uh, who was pope from 1534 to 1549, is considered the first church of the count or rather the first pope of the Counter Reformation, and he was also the initiator of the Council of Trent, tasked with institutional reform addressing such issues as corrupt bishops and priests, the sale of indulgences, and other financial abuses. And here's a portrait of Pope Paul III. Uh, Again, he was Pope from 1534 until his death in 1549. Now, in addition to calling the Council of Trent, he promoted wars in Germany against Protestants. He recognized new Catholic religious orders and societies such as the Jesuits, the Barnabites, and the Congregation of the Oratory. We'll be talking about the Jesuits a lot more later in this uh, survey. He also advanced the career of his illegitimate son in the church. So the work of reform (laughs) needed some reformation. (laughs) But uh, but they began as best they could. And the counter-reformation also involved political activities that included the Spanish Inquisition, as well as inquisitions in other countries, and the index Librorum Prohibitorium. Uh, and the index um, the index was simply a directory of prohibited books, which was updated 20 times during the next four centuries, as books were added or removed from the list by the sacred congregation of the index. These were books or works that the Catholic Church said faithful Catholics should not read. And I can guarantee Luther's 95 Theses was on that list. And this list lasted until 1967. Yes. Um, Literary works that were deemed heretical or contrary to morality were placed on the list and Catholics were forbidden to read them without permissions. Permission, rather. So presumably if you were a scholar and you were doing research in a certain area, you could apply for permission to read you know, something that was on the index. Uh, but other than that, um, there were certain books that were simply off, you know, out of bounds. Another primary emphasis of the Counter-Reformation was a mission to reach parts of the world that had been colonized by Europeans to promote Catholicism there, so think of the New World, North, South, and Central America. Efforts were made to reconvert areas such as Sweden and England that once were majority Catholic, but had been lost to the Reformation. The Council of Trent upheld the basic structure of the medieval church, its sacramental system, religious orders, and doctrine. It recommended that the form of the Mass should be standardized, and this took place in 1570, when Paul V made the Tridentine Mass obligatory. This form of the Mass was always conducted in ecclesiastical Latin, never in a vernacular language. The council rejected all compromise with Protestants restating basic tenets of the Catholic faith. It upheld the doctrine of salvation, appropriated by grace through faith and works of that faith, not just by faith as the Protestants insisted, because faith without works is dead as the epistle of James states, James 2, 22 through 26, and I'm sure these are verses we're all familiar with. So, you know, recall that Luther kind of took issue with the book of James, partly because of these verses, and the Roman Catholic Church saw this as a reaffirmation of the emphasis upon faith with works, uh, which will enable you to become saved. Transubstantiation, according to which the consecrated bread and wine are held to have been transformed, really and substantially into the body, blood, soul, and divinity of Christ in the mass were also reaffirmed, as were the traditional seven sacraments of the Catholic Church. So remember, Protestants have two and Catholics have seven. Other practices such as pilgrimages, the veneration of saints and relics, the use of venerable uh, images and statuary and the veneration of the Virgin Mary were strongly reaffirmed as spiritually commendable practices. These practices were often opposed by Protestant reformers. Again, remember, in many parts of Europe, there there was the Protestant iconoclasts who went into churches, smashed stained glass windows that depicted saints or religious figures or people from the Bible destroyed statues, wrecked paintings, did all they could to destroy these images which they believed the Catholics were worshiping, that it was idolatry. But, but in the Council of Trent, the church, uh, again, doubled down on the use of these images as part of worship for faithful Catholics. The Canon of Trent, which reexamined the scriptures, officially accepted the Vulgate listing of the Old Testament Bible. And if you remember to some of our early talks on uh, Wycliffe and Tyndale, the Vulgate Bible was the early um, version of the Bible from, uh, what, 300s, 400s AD, uh, put together by Jerome, and they simply reaffirmed that this it, these Old Testament scriptures from the Vulgate are... Uh, the scriptures we will have in our Old Testament Bible, and they also looked at the what are called the Deuterocanonical works. Protestants often call these the Apocrypha. These are other spiritual writings that Protestants do not view as on par with the Bible. In other words, they're not divinely inspired works that we can read to. Um, you know, to hear God, they are not part of God's word for a Protestant, but for the Catholics, the church simply confirmed that these texts are on a par with the 39 books found in the Masoretic text, which comprised the Catholic Old Testament. So they simply, you know, and what you begin to see in this is that pretty much everything the Protestants affirmed, the Catholic Church denied, And things that Protestants denied, the Catholic Church simply confirmed. Now, um, we've mentioned pilgrimages. These were very important uh, for people in medieval and um, even up to Renaissance times. To make a pilgrimage, uh, to go on a trip from wherever you lived to a holy site where holy relics of saints were uh, set up within the church. This was extremely important for devout Catholics. Now this map, um, I think you can see it fairly well. Um, Everything is in German on this map. It just happens, uh, I found a really good map on a German website. And um, what this depicts is different traditional routes from different parts of Europe that pilgrims would take to go to, and in this particular case, the end goal And we talked about St. James last time. The end goal was to get to Santiago de Compostela in Galicia, Spain. And that's the very northeasternmost part of Spain. And there is um, a famous cathedral there where supposedly relics of St. James uh, are in the church. And this was a very popular destination for uh, Roman Catholics making pilgrimage to... um, to this church in Spain. And um, throughout Spain and Portugal, many people traveled to northeastern, or rather, sorry, northwestern Spain to this church. And today, people are still doing it. And in fact, it's um, the pilgrimage to this destination, the Way of St. James, um, is, uh, I mean, you could go out on the internet and you could book a trip and you could set up a pilgrimage and you could start from whatever city you wanted to start from. And if you go along this, along these various routes, you will find hostels and inns run by people whose sole job is simply to take care of the pilgrims who are on their way to uh, the church of St. James. And, It's very popular to this day, and many uh, Catholics still make this pilgrimage. Now, the Council of Trent reaffirmed the previous Council of Rome and the Synods of Carthage, and those were Roman Catholic uh, meetings that date back to the 4th century AD, And those had affirmed the Deuterocanon or the apocryphal books as scripture. They are as sacred and as beneficial for people to, uh, they are indeed part of the word of God and we should not separate them out. The Council of Trent also commissioned the Roman Catechism, which served as authoritative church teaching until the 1992 Catechism of the Catholic Church. So this Roman catechism was uh, the basic, again, a series of question, questions and answers like Protestant catechisms, but essentially laying out the doctrines of uh, the Roman Catholic teaching. Now, to counter a famous Protestant confession, the Augsburg Confession, the church developed the Confutatio Augustana in 1530. This confutaria, like much of the pronouncements from the council, reaffirmed traditional Catholic theology and doctrine and yielded no ground to Protestant theology. While the traditional fundamentals of the church were reaffirmed, there were noticeable changes to answer complaints that the counter-reformers were willing to admit were legitimate. Among the conditions to be corrected by Catholic reformers was the growing divide between the clergy and the laity. Many members of the clergy, clergy rather, in the rural parig- paris- parishes had been poorly educated. Often, these rural priests did not know Latin. Okay, how are you going to conduct The Tridentine Mass in Latin, if you're that uneducated. So clearly, there was a lot of work to be done. And these priests often lacked opportunities for proper theological training. Addressing the education of priests had been a fundamental focus of the humanist reformers in the past. And this was something that Luther and other reformers were often commenting on that the people, you know, the people are like sheep without a shepherd. You know, the priests who are supposed to be their spiritual leaders really don't know how to lead and don't have enough knowledge as to know where to lead the people. Parish priests were to be better educated in matters of theology and apologetics. Papal authorities sought to educate the faithful about the meaning, nature, and value of art and liturgy, particularly in monastic churches. Protestants had criticized them as distracting, and a whole lot more. Notebooks and handbooks became more common, describing how to be good priests and confessors. And I'm sure at some point, some of the priests, you know, their, their reading and writing skills may not have been that great to begin with. Um, so, you know, basic education was really lacking among the priesthood. However, the worldly excesses of the secular Renaissance Church, epitomized by the era of Pope Alexander VI, 1492 to 1503, had intensified during the Reformation under Pope Leo X. And if you recall from our study of Martin Luther, uh, Leo was pope during the time that Luther was doing a lot of his work. And um, it, it was the pope that, this is the pope that uh, really caused so many of the problems from Luther's point of view that Luther saw with regard to indulgences. Leo's administration, whose campaign to raise funds for the construction of St. Peter's Basilica in Rome, <clears throat> sorry, okay, okay in Rome, by supporting the use of indulgences, had served as a key impetus for Martin Luther's 95 Theses. The Council of Trent, by virtue of its actions and documents, repudiated the pluralism of the secular Renaissance that had previously plagued the church. So in other words, we're going to get rid of all this secular influence, raising money to build magnificent buildings and have fabulous artwork. And we're going to encourage the faithful, get them better priests, have better church administration, uh, provide learning materials for Catholics to be educated in their faith. And uh, we're, we're basically going to strengthen our institution, and that is the main way that we will counter the Protestants. The organization of religious institutions, in other words, the monastic orders, was tightened, discipline was improved, and the parish was emphasized. Again, recall that Luther, when he made his trip to Rome, he saw priests who were essentially keeping mistresses and you know engaging in various debauchery. And you know, the church recognized that this is a serious problem and we have to address it. Now, the appointment of bishops for political reasons was no longer tolerated. And if you think about it, who is likely in this time period to be appointed as a bishop? A smart, well-educated, wealthy nobleman. Now, a lot of these bishops were simply aristocrats who added the title of bishop to their other titles and, you know, their list of things that they controlled uh, you know, such as estates and uh, various other uh, business interests that they might have. So in other words, a lot of bishops were simply, we would think of them almost as businessmen and you know, being a bishop was really more of an administrative and political thing as opposed to being a religious, a true religious calling or vocation. In the past, large land holdings of the aristocrats in many areas forced many bishops to be absent bishops, who at times were simply property managers trained in administration. So in other words, the work of administering, you know, and the church was wealthy. I mean, the church was the wealthiest institution in many parts of Europe. You know, why do you think King Henry VIII in England was so... You know, not only was it convenient for him to break from Rome so that he could get rid of his Spanish wife who wasn't giving him a son, but he could also seize all of the lands held by the church, the monasteries, the churches, um, and the monasteries were essentially many of them were large as they were like large farms, um, and you know they brought in large amounts of income, and what king wouldn't want to appropriate that after all? The Council of Trent combated this absenteeism on the part of the bishops. And so often many, many bishops not only were absent from their diocese, um, but they were just living in Rome, enjoying the high life, (laughs) in one of Europe's great capitals, or on their landed estates rather than in the diocese that they were supposed to serve. The council gave bishops greater power to supervise all aspects of religious life. Um, Whether or not that was a good thing, I don't know. However, there were some people in the church who really were serious about the work of reform. One of those was Carlo Borromeo. Zealous prelates such as Milan's Archbishop Carlo Borromeo from 1538 to 84 later canonized as a saint, set an example by visiting the remotest parishes and instilling high standards. And here's a portrait of Carlo Borromeo. Uh, Again, he was Archbishop of Milan from 1564 to 1584. He was also a cardinal uh, in the Catholic Church, and he um, supervised Franciscan and Carmelite monastic orders and the Knights of Malta. He promoted increased Catholic learning in the priesthood. And he was very zealous for Catholic education. And there are places throughout the United States today, Catholic institutions, many of them um, you know, connected with universities, um, where you will see the name of Borromeo. Now, an important Catholic institution during this period was the Inquisition. Referred to as the Holy Inquisition within the church, the aim was to combat heresy. Torture and violence were used by the Inquisition for eliciting confessions from heretics. The Inquisition had actually started as early as the 12th century in France to combat religious dissent. There were heretical groups during that time period called the Cathars and the Waldensians. And um, I I might have made mention of the uh, Waldensians. Just in passing, uh, we haven't really talked about these medieval groups, but they were considered heretics and the church wanted to stamp them out. Um, And the Inquisition, of course, because the church was a cosmopolitan, multinational organization, Um, having an inquisition in each land where the Catholic Church had a presence became very important. The inquisitorial courts from this time until the mid-15th century are together known as the medieval inquisition. So the inquisition had been going on for a long time, but it really got greater uh, emphasis and more impetus to move forward and more zealously persecute and prosecute heretics uh, during the time of the Council of Trent. Other groups investigated during the medieval inquisition, which uh, primarily took place in France and Italy, including the spiritual Franciscans, the Hussites, remember John Huss, uh, in Bohemia, uh, Eastern Europe, and the Beguines. Beginning in the 1250s, inquisitors were generally chosen from members of the Dominican order. In other words, they were Dominican friars, replacing the earlier practice of using local clergy as judges. During the late Middle Ages and the early Renaissance, the scope of the Inquisition grew significantly in response to the Protestant Reformation and the Catholic Counter-Reformation, and it expanded to other European countries. Now, the expansion of the Inquisition to the Iberian Peninsula resulted in the Spanish Inquisition and the Portuguese Inquisition. Remember what we talked about last month when we talked about Spain and Portugal. They have been ruled for centuries by the Moors, Muslims. There's a large uh, Jewish population within Spain which had been there for centuries. Finally, in 1492, recall that the Spanish European Catholics got rid of the Moors and the Jews. Um, Now, again, with the Jews, they either had to convert or be killed. If they didn't want to do either of those, they had to leave Spain. So as you can imagine, there was this, you know, when when one religious group does that to another religious group, then you have the problem of false conversions. You know, if somebody tells you, you've got to convert or I'm going to kill you, oh, okay, I'll convert. Um, but do you really? Um, And so there were many, many Jews who secretly practiced their Jewish faith, although, you know, by all appearances publicly, they were Christians. So the Inquisition, um, you know, basically put a spotlight on these people, the Anusim, people who were forced to abandon Judaism against their will. And um, the Spanish term was conversos. And they also focused on Muslim converts to Catholicism. So if, if either of these groups who had you know theoretically converted exhibited signs of reverting back to their old religions, the Inquisition would take care of that. During this time, Spain and Portugal operated Inquisitional courts not only in Europe, but also throughout their empires in Africa, Asia, and the Americas. Again, this is the age of exploration. Portuguese, Dutch, Spanish, French, uh, British, all of these nations are sending out boats full of soldiers, warriors, ready to conquer various parts of the globe, um, subjugate the peoples in these countries and take their resources. So Spain and Portugal especially were very intent on exploiting the new world for all of the riches they believed were there. And um, also in the Far East and in Africa. So the Spanish and the Portuguese set up inquisitions in places like southern India, in Goa. Uh, they set up the inquisition in Peru. They set up an inquisition in Mexico. And so, you know, this sort of thing was spreading throughout the world. Now, this painting here, unfortunately, that is very dark. So if you can't see it very well, I apologize. But um, if you go on Google Images, and you um, just type in the name Galileo, you can can, uh, pull up this painting, and there are others, where artists have depicted what they believe the incident that occurred in the Roman Inquisition between the famous Italian astronomer and scientist Galileo and the Inquisition. Galileo's offense was, He suggested that the earth revolved around the sun. In other words, he proposed that the solar system uh, that we call it today, it was a heliocentric uh, system. Traditional Catholic teaching and theology um, promoted a geocentric idea of the solar system. In other words, all the planets in the sun revolve around the earth. And the Earth is the central part of this solar system because God made the Earth, and it's very special. There's no other planet like it in the universe. And uh, based on ancient Greek ideas, primarily from Aristotle, they believed that uh, everything revolved around the Earth. For Galileo to come along and suggest something different was assumed to be heretical. He was hauled before the Inquisition, and this is a painting by a French artist from 1847 that depicts this encounter. Um, and before we go on, I'll just, uh, with the Jesuits, I'll just mention that Galileo, um, they didn't torture him, but they said, stop, stop teaching and doing what you're doing, and we're going to put you in prison And they put him in prison, but then shortly after he was sprung from prison, I'm not, forget all the details, but they simply said, well, now you're under house arrest. So he continued under house arrest for the rest of his life, but he continued his scientific studies and was still able to do a lot of good work even after um, this sentence was passed upon him by the Inquisition. And now we need to talk about the Jesuits, and I apologize, there's a lot of material here, so I'm gonna go fast. The Society of Jesus, or the Jesuits, is a religious order of the Catholic Church headquartered in Rome. It was founded by Ignatius of Loyola, a Spaniard, and six companions with the approval of Pope Paul III, remember, he was the guy who started the Council of Trent, and the members are called Jesuits. This society, which and it still exists today, This society is engaged in evangelization and apostolic ministry in 112 nations. Jesuits work in education, research, and cultural pursuits. Jesuits also give retreats, minister in hospitals and parishes, sponsor direct social ministries, and promote ecumenical dialogue. Members of the Society of Jesus were expected to accept orders to go anywhere in the world, where they might be required to live in extreme conditions. And this was so because St. Ignatius of Loyola, its leading founder, was a nobleman who had a military background. The opening lines of the founding document declared that the society was founded for whoever desires to serve as a soldier of God, to strive especially for the defense and propagation of the faith and for the progress of souls in Christian life and doctrine. And here's a portrait of Ignatius. He was a Navarrese nobleman from the Pyrenees area of northern Spain. And he founded the society after discerning his spiritual vocation while recovering from a wound sustained in the Battle of Pamplona. He had been involved in helping fight battles against the Moors to free Spain, as it was thought by the Catholics. Um, He composed the spiritual exercises to help others followed the teachings of Jesus Christ. In 1534, Ignatius and six other young men, including Francis Xavier and Peter Faber, gathered and professed vows of poverty, chastity, and a special vow of obedience to the pope. Ignatius's plan of the orders organization was approved by Pope Paul III in 1540 by a bull containing the formula of the institute. Religious orders that were established in the medieval era were named after particular men, for example, St. Francis of Assisi, the founder of the Franciscan monastic order. Ignatius of Loyola and his followers appropriated the name of Jesus for their new order, provoking resentment by other orders who considered it presumptuous. Initially, like the military orders, the Jesuits wanted to go to the Holy Land to fight for the faith. You know, so we've gotten rid of the Muslims in Spain. Now let's go back to the Holy Land and fight another crusade. But the Italian wars of 1535 through 38 were in progress between Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, the Pope, the city of Venice, and the Ottoman Empire, Muslim. And this rendered any journey to Jerusalem impossible. This whole part of the world was uh, Eastern Europe and the Mediterranean area, uh, era, area and um, the Middle East were essentially in a state of war. So the Jesuits devoted themselves to preaching and charitable work in Italy. In the papal bull or proclamation titled To the Government of the Church Militant, And if if you take nothing away from, from what we're talking about today, then this, remember the Jesuits, they have been extremely influential in many parts of the world, and they really put forth this idea of the church militant. We are going to conquer the world in the name of Christ. So to the government of the church militant issued on September 27, 1540, the Jesuits were organized to serve as soldiers of God beneath the banner of the cross in our society to strive especially for the defense and propagation of the faith. So the Jesuits, really, they injected a huge amount of new energy into the Roman Catholic Church and what it believed its mission was in the world. In fulfilling the mission of the formula of the institute, the first Jesuits concentrated on a few key activities. They founded schools throughout Europe. Jesuit teachers were trained in both classical studies and theology, and their schools reflected this. They sent out missionaries across the globe to evangelize those people who had not yet heard the gospel, founding missions in widely diverse regions such as modern-day Paraguay, in South America, Japan, Ontario, Canada, and Ethiopia in Africa, Eastern Africa. One of the original seven, uh, the original seven men who founded the order arrived in India as early as 1541. And here you see the symbol of the Society of Jesus and that's pretty bold, I I think. Um, You know, these guys are on a mission definitely. Finally, though not initially formed for the purpose, they aimed to stop Protestantism from spreading and to preserve communion with Rome and the successor of St. Peter, the Pope. The zeal of the Jesuits overcame the movement toward Protestantism in Poland, Lithuania, southern Germany, and other countries. So the Jesuits were instrumental in returning European areas that had gone Protestant, getting them back within the fold of the Catholic Church. The Jesuits seemed tailor-made for the European age of exploration that was flourishing beginning in the late 1400s. With the Reconquista of Spain for Catholic Christianity finally having achieved the end of Moorish rule, Catholicism in Spain, along with the energy of the Jesuits, entered a period of religious and cultural imperialism. It seemed that Northern European uh, Protestants were not the only zealous evangelists in the world. By the time of Ignatius's death in 1556, the Jesuits were already operating a network of 74 colleges on three continents. <laughs> Ignatius and the Jesuits who followed him believed that the reform of the church had to begin with the conversion of an individual's heart. One of the main tools that Jesuits have used to bring about this conversion is the Ignatian retreat called the Spiritual Exercises. During a four-week period of silence, individuals undergo a series of directed meditations on the purpose of life and contemplations on the life of Christ. They meet regularly with a spiritual director, who guides their choice of exercises and helps them to develop a more discerning love for christ the retreat follows a purgative illuminative unitive pattern in the tradition of the spirituality of saint john cassian and the desert fathers ignatius's innovation was to make this style of contemplative mysticism available to all people in active life. again, remember in much of history the average person spends all of his or her time every day creating the food that they need to live for that day. For rich people, aristocrats, you know um, part of the elite. You were able to not have to spend all of your time simply earning your bread. You could live off the labor of others. But for people, if you were going to follow Christ, how would you follow Christ? If you had a family, if you had children to look after, if you have work to do every day, how are you going to take time from your daily labors to spend time at the feet of Jesus? Well, you can't. And so for centuries, the only option for someone who wanted to seriously follow Christ was to enter the church. And in many parts of Europe, especially in these, in these centuries, the only place you could really go were the monasteries, or the con- if you were a woman, a convent. If you wanted to devote your life to Christ, you ended up becoming cloistered. You entered a convent or a monastery. And what Ignatius wanted to do was, and and certainly as living standards improved and many people uh, were able to take time out from the daily grind to go on retreat, I mean, this idea for centuries would have been impossible for most people. But uh, with rising living standards and a rising middle class, um, this was actually becoming possible for some people. So, the exercises became both the basis for the training of the Jesuits and one of their essential ministries to the faithful uh, in the church, giving the exercises to others in what became known as a retreat. Uh, again, this idea of going on a retreat, for us today, it's nothing. People do this all the time. You know, it's one form of a vacation of sorts. Uh, but for that day, this was truly an innovation. The Jesuits' contributions to the late Renaissance were significant in their roles, both as a missionary order and as the first religious order to operate colleges and universities as a principal and distinct ministry. So the Jesuits um, put together classical, think Greek and Latin, teaching uh, with Renaissance humanism combined with scholastic theology, the basis of the Roman Catholic faith, And in addition to the teachings of faith, um, they put forward something called the ratio studorium that would standardize the study of Latin, Greek, classical languages, poetry, and philosophy, as well as non-European languages, sciences, and the arts. Uh, So they were creating a very um, intensive and comprehensive curriculum of study for those who wanted to go that route. Furthermore, Jesuit schools encouraged the study of vernacular literature, in other words, literature in the common languages, English, French, Spanish, and so on, and rhetoric, and thereby became important centers for the training of lawyers and public officials. So you can see a Jesuit education would fit a person for an an important role in the society of his day. Uh, Perhaps in politics, government, within the church itself, or in other areas of, um, of life and work. Today, Jesuit colleges and universities are located in over 100 nations around the world. There are many in the United States. Under the notion that God can be encountered through created things, and especially art, they encourage the use of ceremony and decoration in Catholic ritual and devotion. As a result of this appreciation for art, coupled with their spiritual practice of finding God in all things, many early Jesuits distinguished themselves in the visual and performing arts as well as music. The theater was a form of artistic expression, especially prominent in Jesuit schools. Uh, So you can think of them as highly educated, very zealous for the Catholic faith, and um, you know, urbane, cosmopolitan well educated and and so for someone to get a Jesuit education would again fit them for an important role in their society and again, the Jesuits went all over the world. Here are two pictures um, I think they're fairly uh, they're not too dark, uh, fairly easy to see. Um, the picture that you see on the left is. Um, a painting uh, from India. Uh, These are Jesuits at the court of, um, I don't know if it was an emir or some some ruler named Akbar in India in the early 1600s. And on the right you see the Jesuit priest Matteo Ricci and a Chinese person whose name I won't attempt. Uh, (laughs) um, But they are sharing uh, a, a document of Euclid's elements. Um, so what the Jesuits were doing throughout the world, not only were they trying to convert people to the Roman Catholic faith, but they were active in spreading education and learning and exchanging ideas in science and, and other areas uh, with the people that they were encountering in these, in these countries that were, many of them, newly opening up to European visitors. After much training and experience in theology, Jesuits went across the globe in search of converts to Christianity. Despite their dedication, they had little success, lasting success in Asia, except in the Philippines. Early missions in Japan resulted in the government granting the Jesuits the feudal fiefdom of Nagasaki in 1580. But this was removed in 1587 due to fears over their growing influence. So there was some openness in Asia, but I think many Asian nations began to realize these Jesuits are really serious about converting all of us and kind of taking over. And so there was some pushback there. Jesuits did, however, have much success in Latin America. Their ascendancy in South American lands accelerated during the 17th century. Jesuits created new missions in Peru, Colombia, and Bolivia. And as early as 1603, there were 345 Jesuit priests in Mexico alone. Jesuits attempted to intervene between the Spanish and Portuguese conquistadors and the indigenous peoples to prevent their enslavement. So the Jesuits were active, you know, wherever the conquistadors went, they wanted to subjugate and enslave all the people they encountered. Take the gold, the silver, and all the rest of the valuable resources from South and Central and parts of North America, and simply make slaves of the natives. Um, And if they'd had their way, all of South and Central America and good parts of North America would have simply been big plantations filled with slaves laboring away. Um, The Jesuits attempted to stop this as best they could. Um, and they, they and and that's a whole story in and of itself. You know, um, if you want to know more about that and without having to study a lot, there's a very good movie called The Mission starring Robert De Niro that kind of highlights that whole thing. Yeah, it's it, not a movie for kids, however. <laughs> I wouldn't, oh, <laughs> yeah, you know, because it deals with some, you know, mature themes. Francis Xavier, one of the original companions of Loyola, arrived in Goa in Portuguese India in 1541 to consider evangelical service in the Indies. The Jesuits first entered entered China through the Portuguese settlement on Macau, where they settled on Green Island and founded St. Paul's College. The Jesuit China missions of the 16th and 17th Centuries introduced Western science and astronomy, then undergoing its own revolution to China. The scientific revolution that they brought coincided with a time when scientific innovation had declined in China. but what was really important is that the Jesuits were actively translating Chinese works into European languages and European texts into Chinese. So again, this exchange of ideas between two cultures that had been separated you know, pretty much from the beginning. OK, I'm going to touch very briefly and quickly on the Spanish mystics, because you need to be aware of them. The Spanish mystics are major figures in the Catholic Reformation of this period. And the goal, again, was to reform the church structurally and to renew it spiritually. The mystics attempted to express in words their experience of a mystical communion with Christ. And these writers had a strong influence on the development of Spanish language and were said to have ushered in the golden age of Spanish literature. And I think now you can perhaps understand why You know, last time we talked about Spain and Portugal and their history. Now, because of the unique history of Spain and Portugal, we see clearly how the resurgence of the Roman Catholic Church during this time period was really part of the resurgence of Spain and Portugal as European countries, firmly within the faith, so to speak. At the beginning of the time period, Spanish had been viewed as a coarse vernacular language for people of the lower classes. By the end, it was considered uh, to be an excellent language within which scholars wanted to work. Perhaps one of the most well-known Spanish mystics as we had uh, at the beginning a picture of, Saint Teresa of Avila, also called Saint Teresa of Jesus, she was a Spanish noblewoman who felt called to convent life in the church. Uh, she entered the order known as the Carmelite nuns. Uh, she was a mystic, a religious reformer, Arthur author rather uh, theologian of the contemplative life and mental prayer. And she was canonized in 1622. She was considered for the position of National Patron Saint of Spain, but that honor, as you recall from last time, went to St. James the Apostle. She was a prolific writer and reformer, um, and she was very advanced for her day, given how few women were able to acquire an education at that time period. She wrote The Way of Perfection, and that is perhaps her best known work. It was uh, inspired by a medieval text called The Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, which you may have heard of. She also wrote the interior castle or the mansions, which depict the human heart as having seven chambers through which the saint must progress in a spiritual journey toward God. St. John of the Cross, and he is pictured there, he was also a Spanish Catholic. Uh, He was a priest, a mystic, and a Carmelite friar. So he was in the men's uh, version of the Carmelite order. He was actually of converso origin, so he had Jewish ancestry. He is a major figure of the Counter-Reformation in Spain, and he is one of the uh, what they call the doctors of the Roman Catholic Church. There are 36 of them, and St. John of the Cross is one. He was mentored by Teresa, and he corresponded with her throughout his life and his poetry and studies on the development of the soul are considered the best of the Spanish mystical tradition. And a few others. Teresa de Cartagena, St. Francis de Borgia, Luis de Leon, and Mary of Jesus of Agreda. Um, and all of these were... Um, People who were monastics, they were in, uh, except, rather, except for uh, Francis de Borgia, he was actually another nobleman um, who never actually entered one of the traditional religious orders. He was a Jesuit. Um, and again, Jesuits didn't, Jesuits didn't sit behind monastery walls and pray all day. You know, when you think of a monk or a nun, that's what you think of, somebody who is cloistered, somebody who's within the walls of a monastery or convent and never leaves. The Jesuits were outward focused, and that's part of why they, you know, certainly the monastic orders are very important, um, the Jesuits perhaps even more so. So this concludes what I have today for um, the Catholic Counter-Reformation. Again, there's so much more to read and study. If you're interested in this period in history, uh, you know Greg and I can help you find resources if you want more. Thanks.